Welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet Podcast. My name is Georgia Ray, and I am your regular host. Today, I will be co-hosting alongside Ella Stack. Ella is a fellow research associate here at ELI who plays a central role in ELI's work under a cooperative agreement with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency to administer its Local Government Environmental Assistance Network, or LGEN for short. Ella, thanks for joining me today. It's great to be here. So Ella is here because this particular episode features ELI's work on Elgene, which is a first-stop EPA compliance assistance center that provides environmental management, planning, funding, and regulatory information for local government elected and appointed officials, managers, and staff. Today, we are talking about air monitoring. Recently, there have been some big changes regarding how air quality monitoring is conducted across the nation changes in who is conducting the monitoring, how the monitoring is being performed, and how data is being used. Luckily, we have three experts joining us today to talk us through this changing landscape. Chet Wayland, Christopher Lee, and Miles Kao. Before we jump into the questions with our three guests, I first wanna tell you a little more about each of them. Chet Wayland is the Director of the Air Quality Assessment Division at the EPA. Chet is currently responsible for the overall management of air quality modeling, source and ambient monitoring, emissions inventory development, and data analysis programs for EPA's Office of Air Quality Planning and Standards. In addition, he represents the Air Office on several of the EPA-slash-state-slash-tribal e-enterprise initiatives and served many years in that same role on its predecessor, the Environmental Exchange Network Leadership Council. In previous positions in EPA, he conceived and developed the AirNow program, oversaw information management systems, and developed emissions modeling platforms. He has a BA and an MS in environmental sciences from the University of Virginia. Chris Lee is co-director of Tribal Air Monitoring Support Center. Chris is a member of Diné Nation. Before joining the Tribal Air Monitoring Support Center, he was an instructor and site director for NASA's Science, Engineering, Math, and Aerospace Academy at Oglala Lakota College. Chris graduated from Northern Arizona University in 1999 in environmental science with an emphasis in implied geology. During his time at NAU, he first experienced tribal environmental program work as an intern assisting the Pueblo of San Juan in their 103 air program development. He also performed monitoring work with the All Indian Pueblo Council. Over the years, in his work with both the Navajo Nation and the Southern Ute Tribe, Chris has been involved in PM and gaseous monitoring, Title V work, air code development, grant funding activities, and a host of other air program efforts. Last, but of course not least, Miles Keo is Executive Director of the National Association of Clean Air Agencies, the national nonpartisan nonprofit association of 157 state and local air pollution control agencies in the United States. Miles leads the association's work with Capitol Hill, the media, and with industry and advocates, and oversees the legal team's activity in the courts. He also provides NACAA's policy expertise on enforcement, climate change, and environmental justice issues. In 2022, Miles played a role in the development and passage of the Inflation Reduction Act and its historic $369 billion investment in federal funding for climate change action and a just energy transition. 
Before joining NACAA, Miles started and directed the research lab at the National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners. Prior to that, Miles worked in the wind power industry and cited energy infrastructure for the Massachusetts Public Utility Commission. He has a bachelor's in international relations from Georgetown University, a master's in environmental management from the University of Cape Town, South Africa, and a graduate certificate in sustainable finance and investment from the Yale School of Management. Chet, Chris, and Miles, thank you all for joining us today. Happy to be here. Thank you. I want to start us off with sort of a 10,000 foot view as we progress into this episode. We can get more into that nitty gritty, but to start us off, I want to hear from each of you what you think the most pressing issues are in the air quality monitoring space from where you stand. Well, thank you. It's a great question. I think one of the most pressing issues today is really this changing paradigm that's happening across the country around the onset of new technology and the capabilities, both on the monitoring side and on the IT side. I mean, today's world evolves around information being available instantaneously and also at your fingertips. You know, everybody's used to getting information on their phone, and that's what they expect from an air monitoring world as well. So monitoring and information technology have both evolved and is continuing to evolve to allow for more real-time data. But it's also evolving to provide lower-cost monitoring technology and sensors that allow people who historically were not in the monitoring game to all of a sudden be able to afford monitoring and do monitoring. And that's leading to this huge surge, I think, in citizen science or participatory science and seeing more and more use of that, You know, more localized information around monitoring. So I, I think this paradigm shift to me, is really the most pressing issue that we're looking at today from the monitoring perspective. This is Miles. I love Chet's answer. I would also add that as we start seeing more kinds of data and more kinds of information available, communicating that data in ways that actually advance the protection of public health from air pollution remains an unfinished challenge. We're starting to see more early adopters and more interested citizen uptake of information about air pollution status. I think that we need to continue our work to make meaningful why that matters to public health. The most vulnerable communities still need to have better access to that information and greater understanding about what it means for their lives and for their well-being and for all of our well-being. There's still an enormous amount of harm that's caused to Americans by air pollution. I really appreciate that information from both Miles and Chet. When it comes to the tribal programs, the state of air monitoring has pretty much been the same for a number of years now. Tribes are still trying to get that capability and capacity to do the regulatory air monitoring that's good for comparing their data to the National Ambient Air Quality Standards. As Chet's indicated, there's been new technology developed that has made it more accessible for people to get information. And Miles touched on some of those issues regarding that information. There's a lot of information out there at the Tribal Air Monitoring Support Center. We've always made that effort to try to train the tribal professionals on the gathering of the data and to get legally defensible data through the regulatory monitoring projects with regards to the tribes. I was just trying to get them adequate training to do these monitoring projects and to be able to share that information with their communities in a way that's accessible to community members. 
I'm glad you mentioned data accessibility and resource availability. I know Ella has a question up her sleeve for later in the episode regarding those issues, but you also mentioned tribal professionals and people who are really committing their careers to this air quality monitoring space. So that's what I want to talk about next. Air quality is obviously a very local issue. It depends on where you live, what your air quality is like. But it's also connected to the broader global context. As we all know, those pollution sources are not necessarily coming from within the community, although they they can be for sure. So with that in mind, could you talk a little bit about why local governments and tribes play such a critical role in ensuring air quality? One thing to keep in mind is the Clean Air Act is the main instrument by which we advance the protection of public health from air pollution. The Clean Air Act was actually written quite a long time after the first air pollution agencies were created and spun out. And the first ones that were stood up were actually local air pollution agencies. Cities had city agencies that addressed public health concerns, especially from smoke and from combustion sources and the like. State agencies came later and then came along the Clean Air Act and the standing up of the EPA. So the Clean Air Act was actually built to recognize the longstanding role that local agencies play in advancing clean air protection for citizens. The Clean Air Act is built on a sort of a three-legged stool approach where local agencies and state agencies do a lot of the implementation and EPA does some implementation, but also sets a lot of standards and offers resources for those agencies to do it. So why did we stay with that route? It's not because the local agencies are better people or smarter people, although I think they're terrific and super smart. It's because they're closer to the yelling. It's because they understand the terrain more. It's because air pollution is fundamentally a problem that exists and impacts people locally. So that's why a lot of local governments have the authority and the responsibility to deploy regulatory monitors, to deploy other kinds of air pollution sensor and monitoring equipment, and have a primary role in communicating with the public what air pollution is locally and what steps they can take to protect themselves and to mitigate those impacts. I think that provides a good understanding of the interplay between the different regulatory authorities coming from the tribal perspective. The folks that are on the ground are the ones that are in touch with all those local issues that are occurring within their communities. As I mentioned before, tribes have consistently been trying to develop the capacity and the capability to, to do different types of monitoring. Now with the advent of sensor technology, it's making data collection a lot more accessible to tribal nations. But again, the usefulness of that information in comparison to the types of data produced by regulatory area monitoring, I think we're still in the process of trying to figure out how to make sense of that. We do continually hear from them that there are specific issues they encounter and trying to figure out how to address those situations utilizing the Clean Air Act. I think the way that Miles laid out the way the Clean Air Act was developed and how those rules and the different mechanisms that are put into place to address those issues really still stems from the folks on the ground seeing those issues firsthand and being able to develop some type of strategy to address those issues. So again, getting back to that local control, we're working with tribes. We try to 
get them that understanding of the role that they play on the ground with addressing these issues. Yes, I want to echo that appreciation for Miles' comments outlining the history of the Clean Air Act and the role that localities played in it. And definitely you, Chris, as well, for explaining the modern tribal context and how it continues to be used. But when we talk about the Clean Air Act, we're obviously talking about federal legislation. So I want to shift now to the national role in air quality regulation. Chet, what trends and issues have you seen from EPA's side? So I'd like to echo Miles and Chris's comments about the Clean Air Act first, because I think it is a brilliant piece of legislation. There are some who would argue, and I would agree, that it's probably one of the most successful pieces of legislation out there when you look at the improvements in air quality since the Clean Air Act and the Clean Air Act amendments of 1990. It's just been phenomenal to see the improvement in air quality. But it does give a role for everybody in there. We really come into this from a couple of facets. One, looking at things from a national consistency standpoint. The way things started initially, you're right. Everybody started at a local level and worked their way up. And they are still the folks most attuned with the problems going on in their community. One of the things EPA brings from a regulatory standpoint is obviously we set the air quality standards. But from a monitoring standpoint, we also set national guidelines on how to do monitoring, what monitors get approved to be regulatory monitors. We work closely with our state and tribal partners on the implementation of aspects of the Clean Air Act. Historically, government agencies were the only ones doing monitoring. And so EPA would say, these monitors are appropriate for monitoring for ozone, or these monitors are appropriate for monitoring for PM, for example. And states and tribes would then go out and deploy those monitors, collect the data, and so forth. With the changing technology and the changing desires, we're now seeing a lot of private sector companies coming out with these low-cost monitoring devices. So EPA's role has shifted a little bit. We still oversee the regulatory networks and we still oversee the monitoring requirements and the quality assurance that has to be done to guarantee that the data is of the highest quality. But now we're being brought into looking at some of these low-cost technologies, these newer technologies, and figuring out how do we evaluate those when we know they're not regulatory in nature, but they can be very useful in supporting communities and providing supplemental information. Everybody would love to have a monitor in their backyard on their street corner. That's unrealistic from a governmental standpoint, just from a resource standpoint. But with some of these newer technologies that folks can buy, there are ways to supplement these regulatory networks and use this to get information in places where previously maybe we didn't have information. I would like to pick up on Chet's comment regarding new and changing technology. There have been many recent changes in air quality monitoring in large part due to the advent of new technology and greater data accessibility. How have these shifts shown up in each of your work and how have they made things easier? That's a really good question. Early on, we saw them really creeping into the accessibility of the information so there's been a lot more involvement of IT folks in the establishment of the monitoring sites. We were having to develop mechanisms to help tribal professionals understand how to network their equipment into their data loggers and to get that information out in accessible ways that they could understand. A lot of these sensors feed directly into Wi-Fi connections, and that information immediately goes out to a cloud database. And so it's been really useful for us in helping get access to the information. The problem that we're facing right now, again, is what is that information telling us and trying to get the tribal professionals to understand that the information provided by the sensors might be different than what we would see from regulatory type of air monitors. So it's 
been good and bad. It's just been an added component of a lot of the things that we've been facing at the Tribal Air Monitoring Support Center. I think Chris is right that there are real advantages and some interesting new challenges and opportunities that we still need to face. But on the advantages side, I want to point to what the public understood about air pollution in the 1970s and 1980s when the Clean Air Act was first kicking up. If you look at really polluted days in the 1970s and 1980s, pictures of the New York City skyline or pictures from Washington, D.C., or pictures from Los Angeles, you could see it was polluted. But public understanding of how it was harming them and how bad it was, was low. Today, we have wildfire events and we have other kinds of specific events that draw the eye towards these very high pollution events. But one of the things that the introduction of the low-cost monitors, the satellite data, the drone-driven data, and other kinds of, of mobile sources They're not as robust as the regulatory networks are, but what they're excellent at is at identifying things that are not visible to the eye. Air pollution is, it's a funny thing. Sometimes you can smell it. Sometimes you can see a sort of a haze, but one of the big killers in air pollution is PM 2.5, these particulates that are 2.5 microns or less in diameter. And what we're talking about with those is a hazard that accumulates over periods of time from exposure to it. That data has created awareness, even against pollution types that you can't see or that you can't smell, but that are still quite harmful for you. It represents the next step in the evolution of how the Clean Air Act is going to protect citizens from air pollution. I agree with Miles 100%. In the old days, you could see air pollution, you could definitely smell it. And when things got better, it was very obvious. Today, air quality is, you know, if you ask the average person, they will look outside and say, well, it looks like a great day today, with the exception of maybe even there's a wildfire event going on, they can actually physically see the smoke. But we know there's still air quality issues out there. They are harder to see, and sometimes you cannot smell them. And so monitoring is a way in which we provide information to the public about what they are breathing. And I think the advent of the new technologies, you know, it's changed our focus in two ways. One, yes, we are looking a lot at these lower cost sensors and what they can bring. They're cheaper, they're smaller, they can be deployed a lot more easily. We obviously concerned about data quality. So it's forcing us to spend a lot more time looking at these low cost devices, comparing them to our regulatory devices. We don't want to have people going out measuring a bunch of things just because it's cheap if what they're measuring is not accurate, because that does them no good at all we want to embrace this new technology. We see the value in it. We want to be cautious in the sense of making sure that the quality of these data are good. At the same time, we're not just looking at low-cost technologies. Technology is evolving in many places. We're also looking at higher-end technologies. As EPA goes through and evaluates the health risk from various air pollutants on a regular basis as required under the Clean Air Act, one of the things we recognize is that the more we learn, the lower concentrations we think need to be out there for some of these various pollutants. The lower you get to the concentration that you're trying to measure, the harder sometimes it is to measure at that lower concentration, especially when you're thinking about air toxics. So we're also spending a lot of our resources and time figuring out how do we take our more heavy-ended, high-end regulatory data monitoring devices 
How do we get them to measure at lower and lower concentrations so that we can make sure we're providing people with data that's going to be health protective? It is getting more and more challenging to measure at some of these lower concentrations, but we know there are health effects at these concentrations. At the same time, we're seeing the low-cost devices proliferate across the country, and that's providing a tremendous resource. Just in June of 2023, when we had these large Canadian wildfires bringing smoke into the Midwestern and Eastern parts of the United States, we actually had a map out there called the Fire and Smoke Map under the Air Now program. And that is actually using regulatory monitors as well as low-cost sensors that provides real-time information to the public to know what they're breathing at that moment. And if we did not have all of the low-cost sensors incorporated into that map, you would see various gaps because our regulatory networks tend to be mostly focused on the urban areas where people live. We don't have as many regulatory monitors out in rural areas, but anybody can put out a low-cost sensor in their community. And a lot of folks have done that. So what we're really trying to do is convey information to the public to let them know what their air quality is. And that can be accomplished through a combination of the regulatory data and the low-cost sensor information. It's great to hear how system visualization, low-cost sensors, and regulatory monitors are improving our understanding of pollutants and community awareness. Of course, technology is not a cure-all, and I'm sure there are still obstacles to effective air quality monitoring. What are some of those continued obstacles? I think Miles mentioned early on in the podcast, data quality. Just because I can monitor for something, I need to make sure that I have a purpose for what I'm monitoring for. Why am I doing this? What level am I going to compare this data to? What health basis am I using to determine if this data is accurate or not? For example, if you're trying to measure fine particulates and you want to compare that to the health standard that EPA has, we have a daily standard and we have an annual standard. If you go out and monitor for two days and you want to compare that number to the annual standard, that's not appropriate because we know air quality changes hourly. It can change daily, definitely changes seasonally. So, you know, knowing what to monitor for, when to monitor for it, and how you're going to monitor for it is really, really important. And then how do you interpret that data? This technology is going to bring a surge of data well beyond the terabytes of data that we get through our regulatory monitoring networks. And interpreting that data, understanding it, being able to take meaningful action based on that data, that is going to be really key. So it's not just about measuring information. What do you do when you've got the results? That's one of the things that we're still struggling with and trying to figure out because the data quality varies. Yeah, that's a great point, Chad. You know, the other piece that goes the next step beyond what you've just described is there's a public education piece of this. It's on our agencies to try and start communicating, although there's probably a lot of other folks who need to communicate about it as well. Not all air pollution delivers acute harms. Sometimes air pollution, you need longer exposures of it. Sometimes different kinds of pollution can be harmful at low levels if there's a long period of exposure for it. The science around how air pollution harms you is complex, and it is evolving really fast. Sometimes there's a notion in the public that as long as I don't face immediately hazardous levels of air pollution on an acute basis right now, I'm fine. And that's actually not accurate. And so trying to do a better job of creating public awareness of how long duration, low level exposures can be harmful and about how to protect yourself in different contexts 
that's going to be complicated. It's going to require a lot of careful communication, public education, and it's got to happen with a public that's got pretty full plates just trying to get through their lives. I started off early with some mention of the resources available to tribes. Tribes have continually had a certain pot of funding that has been provided to them for their air quality programs. And that pot of funding hasn't changed for a long time now. And that, I think, is one of the bigger issues that has been facing the travel programs. There are over 550 federally recognized tribes And we've had more interest from tribes, more tribal nations who want to do some type of air monitoring. Essentially, support has gotten less as the money gets spread around more tribes. Thankfully, we do have the Tribal Air Monitoring Support Center that can provide some guidance. I keep mentioning regulatory air monitoring, and there was a comment that Chet had made that sparked a thought in my head. Folks are always concerned about what their air quality is. And in reality, pretty much everyone would appreciate having some type of regulatory air monitoring in their backyard or close to them. And it's not realistic to do that. When we start talking about tribal nations, there's an added political component in that tribes are sovereign nations. And when we start talking about monitoring stations, all 50 states do have regulatory air monitors that protect their communities. In a lot of cases, there are more monitoring sites within those states. The majority of tribes out there don't even have that first regulatory monitoring site. In a lot of situations, the only monitoring that they might have is sensors. There was a discussion about the quality of the data that's being provided by the sensors and ensuring that the information that's being provided through these sensors is something that's going to be useful. What I've seen from the Tribal Air Monitoring Support Center is that we're trying hard to ensure that tribal nations that are attempting to do some type of monitoring, utilizing only sensors, that they're made aware of those issues with the quality of the data, and then to also ensure that they our understanding of what's required when it comes to doing regulatory air monitoring when you're trying to compare your data to the National Ambient Air Quality Standards. I think Miles made this comment about the education and outreach component. This is something that we're continually working through. We're really trying our best to ensure the tribes of that understanding with regards to the authorities under the Clean Air Act, the sovereign tribal nations, and then going from that component to understanding the actual technical components of the monitoring projects, what's required by the agency to do this type of monitoring, and then going to the next steps of how that information is to be utilized. Now that we have the sensor networks out there, it's just, it's added to what we're doing. I'd like to add just this one note about this question. There's definitely opportunities that are afforded by the addition of low-cost sensors. One thing that we probably want to continue to stay on top of is the equity of the distribution of that data, right? Low-cost sensors are called low-cost, but I think it depends a lot on the affluence of your particular community or yourself in particular, what low-cost means. And so as we deploy these new ways of gathering data about air pollution, There's definitely a risk that we can focus our data collection where the Clean Air Act and other kinds of regulatory mechanisms already afford a pretty good level of protection from air pollution. And 
just understanding that the most vulnerable communities do tend to line up with the ones that are least able to go out and buy low-cost monitoring equipment of their own. If we're mindful of that, we can direct expenditures on those kinds of data collection equipment, and we can direct our education efforts to help those communities understand the implications of the data that's gathered in a way that advances the best protection to the people who are most vulnerable to air pollution in the first place. I appreciate you making that note. And actually, if we could stay with you for a second, as somebody who's more involved on the policy side, can you explain how the recent American Rescue Plan and Inflation Reduction Act provisions have impacted air monitoring? In 2021, NACA started engaging with Congress about what would be useful investments to expand the protection provided by the monitoring network. We talked to them about deploying improvements to the monitoring network and also bootstrapping in deployment of other kinds of data collection methods, satellites and sensors and the like, to make sure that those investments both augmented and improved the regulatory network, but also went out and improved the ability for communities to get better understanding and better visualization of air pollution. And that turned out to be about a 50-50 split in the language of the law about what kinds of investments could be made. And then that money was passed over to Chet's shop at EPA, and they've done a bang-up job of getting the money out there in the world and affecting improvements to the regulatory monitoring network and also deploying a lot of other components that were needed. Chet, you should really talk about the specifics of where that is, though. Well, thanks, Miles. And and yeah, I think the goal was we recognized that the existing regulatory networks that are run by the state and local tribal agencies, you know, I think Chris made the point, the funding has been somewhat stagnant. And so when the American Rescue Plan funds came available, as well as some of the Inflation Reduction Act funds, we recognized that we needed to look at this in two folds. One, how do we bolster the, if you will, the backbone of the monitoring programs across this country, and that is the state, local, and tribal monitoring programs. And so we took a significant amount of the American Rescue Funds and IRA funds and supported the ongoing existing regulatory monitoring programs. And again, these are over 5,000 monitors across the country. They monitor for all kinds of different pollutants. So we wanted to provide enhancements, provide money for long-term operation and maintenance beyond what is provided through the EPA grant programs. But we also recognize, as we've been talking about all along, that if you really want to get to the heart of some of a local issue, you want to get down to the local level and let folks do some of that monitoring. And so we took over $50 million of that money and provided that in a competitive grant competition for communities. I'm really excited about that. It's, it's around 132 different grants that are going to be going out to do local scale monitoring. A lot of those are going to be using low cost sensors. But a lot of those are going to be using regulatory technology. It's probably a good time just to make one point around this. We've talked a lot about low-cost sensors, and they are amazing, and they are rapidly evolving. But they are very limited in the types of pollutants that they can monitor for. Right now, particulate matter is probably the one where the low-cost sensors have had the greatest success. But if you're talking about air toxics, even ozone, for example, these lower cost devices are not nearly as effective. And in some cases, they don't even exist. So we can provide low cost technology for certain pollutants, and that's great. But if you're in a community where your primary issue is air toxics, 
then the state agency or the local agency or the tribal agency or EPA, we're going to have to work with that community because that's going to involve some high-end monitoring to solve that problem. We all have to work together on this, federal, state, local, tribal, but also the communities. We need to work together to solve these problems. As we go forward, the IRA money, the ARP money is definitely going to be a shot in the arm. We've tried to focus this money in the right places at the right time to address as many of these issues as we can. And personally, I'm extremely excited about seeing some of the results coming in, not only from the money we sent to the states and tribes to enhance their networks, but what we're going to see from some of these local scale community projects. That is really exciting. It's great to hear and highlight those funding opportunities. Are there any other resources that you wanted to highlight that EPA offers to tribes, local governments, or communities? So we have our standard grant programs that go out to states and tribal agencies. Are they adequate? Probably not in the sense of what everybody wants to do, but those funds EPA provides on an annual basis to actually run the monitoring programs. In addition to the IRA money and the American Rescue Plan money, the Office of Environmental Justice here at EPA routinely does community-scale grants as well, and a lot of those tend to focus on air monitoring. And under the Inflation Reduction Act, they've got around $2.8 billion in community-scale grants that they're going to be rolling out, and that money will be competitive. It'll be competitive grant process, but that money will be available for folks to do additional monitoring as well. So I think the old adage is enough is never enough recognizing that we don't control the annual funding that is dictated by Congress. But when these grant opportunities come up, we want to make sure people are aware that these opportunities are there so that they can take advantage of those and try to get some of that money through the competitive process to do additional monitoring. This has been a great episode so far. And as we wrap up here, I was wondering if you could each briefly tell me, what do you think is coming over the next 10 years? What developments might we see? And what is the greatest opportunity we might be able to take advantage of? I really appreciate the last comments from Chet and Miles. In regards to the new funding that has come out from the RA as well as ARP, they've been really been helpful for the tribal nations getting more equipment and rebuilding some of the monitoring that they're doing. Unfortunately, what I'm seeing immediately has been a lot of tribes indicating that because of the current staff levels that they have right now, that they really don't have the ability to adequately apply for a lot of the funding because there's just so much that they have on their plates. In many cases, the tribal programs that we're working with are one and two man operations. And those one and two man operations are trying to administer the grants. They're trying to implement the projects, run the equipment and so forth. And so in that scenario, it's very difficult to find additional time to develop grant proposals for a lot of the funding that Chet has mentioned. As far as the future, I don't really see too different of a change in regards to the tribal air programs and what they are facing right now. Although as quickly as the technology is moving, I, I anticipate there's going to be a lot more new processes and mechanisms that will be developed and effort on our part to try to provide the adequate training for tribes to implement those projects. From my perspective, when you think about the next 10 years and what's the greatest opportunity, we've talked a lot about emerging technology and on the IT side and on the monitoring side, and that that's going to continue to happen. That's going to evolve. But I think to me, the greatest opportunity for us is to have kind of a sea change moment if we could. And that is how do we leverage that technology to promote better engagement with our partners, federal, state, tribal, local partners, but also with the public, with the communities, 
yes, government can regulate and can reduce air pollution, and we can do all kinds of things to make air quality better. We also are talking about fundamentally changing the way things happen in some of these communities. And some of that's going to be beyond just regulating this facility or that facility. And that's not going to happen if we're not engaged and involved with those communities. We can do that without the technology, but I think the technology is going to allow us unending opportunities to sit down and engage with these communities and with our partners to solve the air quality problems of the future. We can't do this alone. None of us can. We have to do this together. We're at a time that I have never seen in my career where there is just such a rapid change in technology. We need to take advantage of that and leverage that to improve what we should be doing all along anyway, which is engaging with folks in the communities and solving these air quality issues. I think Christopher and Chet are dead right about 10 years from now. With luck, technology will help us drive better clean air protections for everybody. I'll just add, what I'm really interested in is what we don't know will happen. I'm never a guy who will bet against revolution. We did not know when data revolutionized most of the rest of the sectors of the economy, what would happen. We did not know that when you put map data on your phone, you'd never have to stop and ask for directions again. We didn't know that when you started measuring phasers on the power grid, that that would not only help improve reliability, but it would enable us to integrate just an unbelievable amount of wind and solar into the grid. And likewise, I don't think we actually know what suddenly having a wealth of information about what air pollution is and how it's going and how it's affecting people. I don't know that we can exactly predict what in 10 years that could drive into society, but I have a hunch that it has the capacity to be transformative in this arena the same way that it's been transformative in other arenas. Maybe it'll change how we do city planning. Maybe it'll change how we do transportation. Maybe it'll have real impacts in how we address equity issues in our communities. It's not a guarantee, but I'm always really fascinated when you introduce something that's never been there before, what kinds of revolutionary changes are possible. And like I said, I never bet against revolution, and I wouldn't be surprised if this wealth of new data and this wealth of new information and our ability to communicate with the public about it creates transformational changes. I think you are totally on the money with that mindset of, well, we really don't know what those transformational changes might be, but I'm excited to see what they end up being. And maybe we could even have you all in a podcast in 10 years to talk about it again. So thank you for joining us today and teaching me more about air quality monitoring. And Ella, if you have any final thoughts. Thank you all so much. This has been so informative. Yeah, looking forward to seeing you in 10 years. (laughs) This was fun. Thanks, guys. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org. 
www.thepeopleshow.org.